to the fourth episode of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be discussing the difference between um, English and American classics, or whether we like English or American classics more than the other. And we are going to be pitting two favourite children's authors against each other. So we'll be having Enid Blyton versus Edith Nesbitt. So... That's our discussion for today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very excited. I'm particularly excited about the second half, actually. I'm, yeah, I'm me too. I, I do not know where I'm gonna what I'm gonna pick yet. So. <laughs> oh really? Okay. Well, I've already made up my mind on that one. Okay, I've, I'll be easily swayed in the wind. Clearly, <laughs> whatever you suggest. No. Um, uh, how are you? How have you been? I'm, I'm okay, Simon. I'm okay. I've got two days left of school, so once that's finished, then I'll be a lot happier. Especially as everyone else in the world has stopped school already, apart from me. How about you? Just finished Hans and Rebels by um, Jessica Mitford. Oh, do you know, I've been meaning to read that for a long time. Well, so have I. Um, and I'm also calling it Hans and Rebels, because apparently Hon is a pun on hen, but I don't know if it should be Hans and Rebels. I think I think Hans is, well, it's a play on words, yeah. isn't it? Is it, um, is it is it is it worth reading? Absolutely. So I I love me some Mitfords, and I have not read anything. Well, when I read the letters of them all, I took against Jessica Mitford because she didn't seem to like her sisters very much, um, and lots of people railed against us and said I should read this book, um, and it sort of made me like her more. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but she's yeah, she still doesn't seem to like her sisters very much, and I can excuse her not liking the Nazi, but actually the Nazi is the one she liked most. It seems. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about the Mitfords, but um, you know, I love reading about them. But yeah, their their politics and their rather often extreme, extremely strong familial relationships with one another. I just yeah, they're odd, but wonderful to read about. And I do find, and this is a very ham-fisted segue. Please be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's intriguing that they're considered such quintessential British people, and yet Jessica lived most most of her life in America. Wow, yeah. that is a perfect link, isn't it? It's a really, really awful link. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so when you suggested American classics versus English classics, I, I did think to myself, I'm pretty sure I know which one I'm going to pick. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a shocker. <laughs> uh, but, but also, it made me think, which American classics do I actually like? And then, and then the much broader question, which I don't think we're going to be able to cover in a podcast, of what makes a classic. So I don't really know where to start, um, other than rattling through ones I've read and not liked. <laughs> but I should start positively and say, topically enough, that To Kill a Mockingbird is brilliant. <laughs> yes. But then all the other ones I think of, when I think Moby Dick and The Great Gatsby and Catching the Rye, as of course we talked about... Um, I'm just not a big fan of them, um, and I've, I just, I don't think it's their Americanism, Americanism, Americanness that they have in common <laughs> that puts me off for them. I think it's just that I haven't read a huge number of American classics. Is it, and is it something about the fact that they're set in a unfamiliar place or the, the style of writing? Do you think? Well, I was trying to think of the American books I do like, and I don't know if they count as classics or not, and. They obviously also said in different place. I was thinking, I love Eudora Welty, the books ever by all the books, well, at least one book. The Optimist Daughter is a brilliant book, and you would definitely love it if you've not read it. I but, have read it. Yeah, did you love it? Um, okay, am I being proved wrong immediately? <laughs> I did like it. I didn't love it. Oh, that surprises me. Okay, but that's obviously, is that Deep South? I think it's Deep South. Mm. And that's obviously set in a, in a different place, and yet 
I'm fine with that. So I, I think it's probably more just a book by book basis. Or in fact, the other thing the books I mentioned before have in common that they're written by men. That, that's always a, a turn off for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I shouldn't say it's terribly sexist, but the the big the big men of literature, whether American or British, tend not to be my go tos, as you know. Oh, this could this is I can tell this is a topic for perhaps another day. I, I think it is. I think it is. Gender and classics. Um, I mean, I'm gonna just think about. I mean, I love reading American classics because I think they have a different perspective on the world, and I think it's interesting how the sort of American classics that are studied in school and things like that tend to be set during real periods of American history that are quite transformational in the sense of the American psyche. So you're talking about things such as the Great Depression or the 1950s where you've got civil rights movements. Mm. Um, Have you read a classic set in the civil rights movement? um, Well, we've got... To kill a mockingbird, I guess. Yeah, yes, I, that's I a good point. I can point. think of other things. Probably I have, but I can't think of anything. <laughs> um, I did do a whole semester on American literature at university, and it's all completely gone out of my head. Um, <laughs> and I have, you know, lots of stuff from, say, you've got Steinbeck and um, a lot of those kind of things. <laughs> <Yes. stuff>. You <laughs> can tell sorry about that. at all. I'm really sorry. What, um, what do you think... Um, and let, let's, let's try and tackle this impossible question briefly, yeah. just to find our terms. What what makes something a classic? I think my definition of a classic is if it is studied. Okay. I'm not saying that a book can't be a classic if it isn't studied, but I think if it's if it's studied and it's widely accepted as a sort of canonical piece of literature, mm. I would say that that is what is classed as a classic something that's read widely still like 50 plus years after it was first published so those two things that you just said seem to me quite different <laughs> in terms of <laughs> whether the what, what academics think of it versus if it's still widely read i guess that maybe it's the meeting point of the two that makes it a classic but, yeah. but i'd argue that something like ulysses is a classic and yet who reads ulysses by choice <laughs> so, there's a lot of truisms to, around the concept of what is a classic, and I think we all, it always comes back to back to the fact that a classic is defined by other people. It's defined by the academy. It's defined by mostly FR Leavis, it seems. Yeah. Um, um, and then you have modern classic, and you have you know Persephone's sort of brand of classics. I, I, if I'm widening the net to things we can count modern classics, then I, that's when a whole bunch of, I mean, like the Eudora Worldies of this world, <laughs> um, rush in and make me like American literature more. But thinking about British classics, I mean, again, there's a whole bunch. I mean, sorry, I'm talking. I'm, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it's not necessarily a fair comparison when you think that the tradition of the novel in America before the, I don't know, a mid 19th century is also the tradition of the novel in England in that yeah. they, they didn't really have one I'm, I'm picking my date wrongly I'm sure but obviously English, English literature became before American literature and many of our classics came before much American literature was published what do you make of that? <laughs> yes and I think that there are a lot of 
classic American writers, probably from pre-1930, who are actually very British in their style. And I would imagine that those are the kind of American writers that you like. So people like Edith Wharton and Henry James. Um, I loathe Henry James, but yeah, I, I guess... Every, who does like Henry James? <laughs> Edith Wharton's a you know. But those are writers who are very much... American writers who are very much writing in the British tradition, and they tend to set their novels in quite European societies. Um Whereas I think once you get past the 1930s or the sort of 1920s, 1930s, you've, you're finding American literature becoming much more about the experience of being American mm, and mm. Sort of pioneering into the new world and all that kind of stuff. And those are the American classics that I really enjoy reading. I mean, I really like Edith Wharton, but I don't tend to feel the Americanness of her, if you see what I mean, because she doesn't read like an American, I don't think. And what she discusses, all the sort of social niceties and the social world of society, is very much something you'd get in, a, in an English novel of that period. Um, whereas I don't think an, an English person could have written The Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men um, or the stuff like Main Street and uh, Upton Sinclair novels, I'm trying to think of some other people. did a lot of American reading when I lived in New York and it's <laughs> just gone out of the window. People also like, um, um, what's her name? Who wrote all those books? By Antonia. What's Willa Cather? Oh, Willa Cather, yeah. Yeah. Um, all those sorts of novels set in the wilderness and the prairies. I love that stuff because it's so different to what I read about England. It's so far away from my experience, and it and it chronicles the founding of America and what the experience of becoming a nation in its own right with its own culture. Um, so I think American classics are really interesting from that perspective, and certainly British classics. There's like you say, they started the tradition of the novel, so you don't necessarily have that real sense of this is to do with my nationhood or this to do with with my culture as much as you do with American novels that are really kind of carving away for themselves in the early 20th century. That's really interesting. So you think maybe even to this day that state of the nation type novels are more of an American phenomenon than they are a British one? There is a need for them to make a claim on, on having a culture and so there is this need to talk about what it is to be an American, whereas I don't think British novels necessarily talk about that explicitly. It's more of an implicit thing. I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I prefer British classics in general is because I'm more interested in the small things, like the like minutiae and the everyday details. And maybe that's why the American writers I do write, and I keep, I must think of more than you do a well do that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, even like modern classes like Marilyn Robinson, um, whom we talk about a lot, um, they're, they are more interested in the day to day details of life and perhaps intend to sort of make a claim about the nation wide, more widely from that. Because I guess something like A Mice and Men is, is drawn quite narrowly, but with in t- intending to throw light on a much wider issue. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's cloaked more in British novels. Maybe they, it seems to be accepted that just a normal life or an everyday life is an acceptable topic for a novel without having to be a, um, a microcosm of anything else. Yeah. And then, I mean, when I think classics, when I think British classics, my mind always, of course, goes to Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, all these sorts of enormous and in some ways um, unique writers who... Uh, Especially Dickens, I never think of Dickens as being part of a tradition or part of anything. He doesn't seem, really seem to have any imitators as far as I've come across. He's just this glorious... Like, Phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Um, do, do you think British classics encourage more um, eccentric one-offs, or am I just picking my examples very <laughs> um, deliberately? <laughs> I think, you know, historically, obviously, there, there have simply been more novels published mm. in Britain over time, and I think there is more of a diversity amongst um, certainly older British classics because there has been the volume of them to produce. I don't think that, as I say, I don't think American literature, and I'm sure plenty of people will disagree with me entirely on this, <laughs> um, got really going and on and having its own identity um, until the 20th century. And then you've got loads of amazing people coming out, especially sort of F. Scott Fitzgerald and people of his generation. Um, but I think, yeah, I think British literature is not trying to to do anything. It's just trying to tell stories a lot of the time, um, because they don't. I don't think British writers have had anything to prove. If you see what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it's interesting to say about the 20th century for America, because I I can only think really of the Scarlet Letter, which I've not read, um, and is Moby Dick um, 19th century? I can't yes, remember. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, as the big, um, and again, people have already said there's loads, but mm. the, before the 20th century, those seem to be the the big ones. And I guess it was the 20th century which turned America into a superpower. So maybe yeah. <laughs> the two came along, or at least maybe the dissemination of their novels outside of America came along at the same time. And I think Americans do have, I mean, I'm again, sorry if I'm offending anyone, but from my experience of living there, I think there is... Um, more of an identity crisis in America because you've got so many people coming from so many different places. I mean, America is a nation of immigrants, isn't it? Um, and so that it's a lot of people trying to work out who they are and what does it mean to be American. And at the same time, things like the novels that write about the American dream, and as a side note, has any novel ever celebrated the American dream? It's, <laughs> it's always the uh, death of it. But yeah. um, the things like that talk about a collectivity of Americans, about how it is to be an American, whereas maybe it's the class-boundness of British society traditionally and still today in, in many ways that I mean the British novel is only ever going to be, or was ever going to be, about one particular echelon. It, it's not about what it's like to be a Briton because there was much more sense of people being different and not, not really a thirst for equality until quite recently, perhaps. Maybe. I think... Being British is so ingrained in our blood, really, in our skin, that we don't really need to think about it. I think... Yeah, maybe people are much more interested in thinking about what it's like to be a middle-class Briton or what it's like to be, you know, an unmarried Briton and think about to... Basically, I'm thinking Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. (laughs) Then they are about what is it to be a Briton. Maybe maybe you're completely... Yeah, that it's just accepted. Yeah, I think there's... I don't think there's ever really been a crisis of identity... Um, about being British because you know I mean what I, the thing I probably love the most about being British is that we're such an audacious <laughs> nation in in that we just you know think we're better than everyone else and can just take over the world despite the fact that we're a speck in the middle of the sea <laughs> and I think that sense of of knowing yourself and having that real entrenched sense of, of Britishness and of being the best is something that flows throughout our literature. And I don't think anyone's ever sat down and thought, oh, you know, I feel really conflicted about what it is to be British because I don't think there is a conflict about it. I think it's very much a socially accepted thing of this is what, these are the parameters of what it means to be British. We've got this historic, rich amount of culture that's going back, you know, centuries and America doesn't. And so I think sort of 20th century plus 21st century American novelists are very interested in exploring what it is to be American because they don't have that perhaps cultural 
history to fall back on and that legacy to fall back on. So they're forming their own legacy now, which is why so many American novels of the 20th century are so amazing. And they're also so interesting in the sense that they look at a world beyond that of a drawing room, which is very much what English books do. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. To go to go back to being about, I should point out to your books, not pro colonialization. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, obviously we're not. Um, I I do think that's interesting. The sort of sense of superiority, um, not just for being British, perhaps, but for being the the leisure class you're able to write. I think yeah, that maybe that that changed. Maybe with D.H. Lawrence or the, with the sort of angry young men um, of the 50s and 60s, where it didn't so much change what it was to be British, but it changed, or thinking about what it was to be British, perhaps, but thinking about what it meant to be the voice of Britain. I don't know who was entitled to have the literary voice of Britain. Yeah. Well, and I obviously that sort of thing continues today, like all sorts of writers... Um, challenging what it means to be British whether that means coming from different countries or whatever yeah I think that's definitely becoming more of an of an interest of people um since the 90s really um but you know would we call those novels classics at this point I don't think we would to go back to a a more um qualitative or sort of evaluative (laughs) um much more reductive stance (laughs) um which do you think are better (laughs) Oh, well, I really love reading American literature. Like, I find it really fascinating because I I love reading about the experience of, of seeing America kind of coming into its own. Um, but I think, well, because it's my own nation's literature, I just, I really just prefer, I love British classics and I can't get enough of them. And I love, because they're part of my, yeah they're part of my culture and they're part of my history and when I read them I understand everything in them implicitly whereas I think reading American literature sometimes I don't understand some of the references or I don't quite understand the attitudes of people and I think with British literature I kind of just get it if you see what I mean yeah absolutely um I, I don't think the writing is any better I will I will say that I don't think British writers are inherently better than American writers I feel completely out of my depth on this topic, to be honest, and I feel like we've drawn such a broad one that we have no idea <laughs> how to narrow our parameters or anything. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm going to pick British classics. That was a given before we started, <laughs> <laughs> and not not least because of the, the longer history. Um, as to whether I think British writers are better than American writers, I don't know. I'm just going to give up before I offend everyone and to say, I'm picking British classics. I should read more American classics. Sorry, America. USA! USA! You <laughs> <laughs> uh, I blame you entirely for choosing this topic. But, um, please don't stop reading my blog, Americans. I love you. Um, and yay, Shirley Jackson. That's what I should have said at some point. Um, love Shirley Jackson. So thanks, America, for her. Yeah. Um, I'm, I love American literature, so I'm completely fine on this one. Um, but let's let's move on to more comfortable ground, shall we? And let's ground ourselves entirely in, in British writers. Yeah, British children's writers. So you did we? I suggest this, or you suggest this? I think I suggested this one. Yeah. Or, or maybe, maybe it was a, a no, beautiful it was meeting you. of minds. It was you. You said we have to talk about Inuit Brighton at some point, and I said yes. So. Oh yes, and you wanted to compare to Noel Stratford, and I've not read anything by her, yeah. so... <laughs> so we won't so we... read this bit. So why don't you start off with talking about 
with your opinions of these writers. I certainly will. So, first of all, I always call her Enos bit rather than Edith Nesbitt, which is just entirely because that was what was on the cover of the yeah. books I had. <laughs> so, name is Edith, isn't it? So, if I may and her name definitely is Edith. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just can't bring myself to call her that. It's, yeah, to me, she would always be E. <laughs> We're very familiar, me and E. But um, my thoughts here are twofold. <laughs> they are that... Um, Inesvet is almost certainly the better writer, but Ina Blyton formed so much of my childhood and made me the reader I am today that I love her devotedly. So I will be tormenting those two things, but I will start by um, talking about my love of Enid, I guess. So I had a more or less unvaried diet of Ina Blyton throughout my childhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've always been a, a reader who... Well, especially until I, until my 20s, I guess, I was always a reader who picked one thing I liked and I just stuck with it. <laughs> I just, I'd read everything that author read or everything that series. Um, and it was usually trash. We've already talked about my addiction to Sweet Valley High. That came up <laughs> before that. Well, before that was Point Horror, before that was Goosebumps, and before that was Ian Blyton. And I, I lived for that. And obviously, she wrote so much that I would never come to the end of it. Bless her heart. And... Yeah, I couldn't get enough. I love some more than others, and I'd be interested to know which which you liked best as well. But okay. in terms of quantity and effect on my life, Enid was my childhood, basically. Um, I would say, yeah, very much the same with me. I mean, I grew up on a diet of The Famous Five, Secret Seven, um, all the mystery books, um, and the, the adventure books, and... Um, Mallory Towers, which was my absolute dream life in a book. <laughs> I would sit there reading them at night, thinking, why don't I go to boarding school? So unfair. I could be having a midnight feast right now, and I'm not. Um, and so this is interesting, because I loved, well, I actually loved St. Clair's rather than Mallory Towers. St. Clair's. Never read those ones. I think uh... because I my books in the library, and they didn't have St. Clair's in the library. They had Mallory Towers, so that's what I read. Until I bought me my own copies, which I could then read at any time I wanted, which was (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) But even though I read those and loved them, the idea of going to boarding school was still anathema to me. I definitely never wanted to go. I was definitely up for that. I I used to beg all the time until my mum explained to me that the reason why I could go to boarding school was because it wasn't some kind of free jolly, but (laughs) incredibly expensive. I was like, oh, right, okay, that's why I don't go then. Was um, this your first meeting of the inequality of like, you know, wages in Britain? Was okay. I have my first experience of, of class-bound society. Um, <laughs> thanks, Enid. Yeah, thanks for exposing me to that terrible realisation that I'm not boarding school material. Um, but I think, you know, nowadays, I mean, I've, I actually don't like rereading her books at all because I think they are so much a product of my childhood and, I loved them when I was a child and I recently rebought all of the Mallory Towers books um, just just for laughs. So I sure. thought, I'll have a read back through them. And I was shocked by the horrific, horrific racism, classism, mm. everything in there. And I thought this has just ruined it all for me. Absolutely. There's so many questionable morals in here. I can't even begin. But so um, I think the, the sad thing about Enid Blyton is that she is best left to memory, I think. Um, whenever, yes, whenever I want to talk about my love of Enid, I, I, I start saying, yes, she's racist and sexist, but, and then think, you can't <laughs> say that, Simon, there's no but that makes it okay for someone to be racist and sexist. But... <laughs> she is a product of her time, to be fair. Yes, yes, we can't, and, and I'm a big fan of, or a big advocate of um, 
not throwing out the past, not just sort of censoring everything that yeah, doesn't meet with they... today's morals. Because they've done that to all of her books now. So no one's reading the originals anymore. Do you know, and this is a tangent, my um, my biggest pet peeve with them updating the books, and this is really not an issue, is that <laughs> they'd, they'd update the currency to being today's currency rather than pound shilling pence. And they'd do the conversion of um, a shilling as 5p because there's 20 of them in the pound. And they would, so they put like, and then he gave me 10p or something, and it's supposed to be two shillings. I was thinking, 10p does not buy you what two shillings would have bought you. Your <laughs> sums are wrong, and this makes no sense. <laughs> Just find an equivalent <laughs> in terms of how much they spent, not percentage of the pound. <laughs> I didn't know they'd done that. That's ridiculous. I bought a new dress for 10p. Exactly. And some would argue that I should be more worried about the racism, but this was, <laughs> this was my bête noire. <laughs> Really, it's the um, it's the finances that are the exactly. That's the crux, I believe, of all her novels. <laughs> <laughs> novels is such a strong word for what they are. Yeah, but my absolute favourites um, were the famous five and the naughtiest girl in the school. Did you read those? No, I don't know if I did. I don't think I did. And people often didn't, and it was just it's this bizarre like it's, a, it's basically a communist manifesto. Like the, <laughs> the the children run the school. Like they have meetings where the children can decide everything. The teachers are sort of smile and amy in the background and say, "Oh, the children can decide your punishment." What? <laughs> and obviously, it's it's more or less a sort of horrific dystopian future. But it's <laughs> but in, in 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 her hands, everyone you know swiftly becomes better off. people, and yeah. you know, Lord knows anyone who happens to be unfortunate enough to wear glasses or be overweight or something gets better of those vile illnesses <laughs> at the end of the book. <laughs> I know this is what gets me about reading her books because you just think seriously that you know you're a horrible person um, because, <laughs> because you talk about yourself sometimes and you have to learn to be better and normally that's by being frozen out by everybody else <laughs> yes. until you've decided that you're better than them. But, I mean I just I love the period quality of them. I love the fact that you know everything's always lashings of everything. Yeah. Lashings of ginger beer and Cook is always buying you know making amazing food in picnic baskets and yeah. everyone's just on a picnic all the time. It's just fantastic. It's like what so ideal version of England are you living in? And the uh, the parents or aunt and uncle or whatever are always like, yes, sure, go off camping for a week, ten year old, it'll be fine. Exactly. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you yes, you got kidnapped last time you went, but it's fine. <laughs> go again. It's like how many times are you gonna let your kids be kidnapped before you want to keep us like some watchful eye on them? <laughs> oh, it's funny. That's, I think that's what makes her book so appealing to children is the sense that of freedom and the parents just aren't there, so you can yeah, do whatever yeah. you want. Um, and there is that idea that that you are really independent and exciting things happen to children and and in those situations you're not just going to stand there and cry you'll have like serious conversations and and do like responsible things and have loads of fun while you're doing it and always have plenty to eat so much yes, yes. you always find a natural spring somewhere yeah. <laughs> okay, so to pitch up and then you'll manage to unpack your digestive biscuits and your yeah. <laughs> And your slabs of cake. Oh, it's slabs. Slabs, it? yes. Uh, unless you happen to be Anne in the famous five, in which case you'll just do some washing up. <laughs> yeah, poor Anne. She always gets a short straw. And in <laughs> fact, all the famous five, except for Timmy, are pretty awful. <laughs> they're, just, like, they're all fairly obnoxious. <laughs> they are. And they are obnoxious children. And the thing is that they're just so um, stiltingly written, I think. <laughs> Their dialogue, you just, oh, do come on, okay then, and that's it. And they're all very posh and ridiculous. But, you know, you love that when you're a kid, don't you? You don't think about those things when you're a child. Yes, and I do wonder if people who read them when they were being published um, 
notice the sort of how unlikely they were because now I think well when I, well, when I was reading them as a child I just thought all oh, these are in the past this must be how you all spoke in the past yeah <laughs> but, but I guess realism in children's book is quite a modern day phenomenon yeah <laughs> and, and I'm not sure necessarily a good one there's always like we must tell kids the truth and like well let let kids believe let children you know in far the faraway tree for a while or in like yeah. adventures where all will come good in the end. I agree, and I think there's there's pure escapism and um, fantasy, like Id- idyll of of Enid Blyton is wonderful. You know, everyone living in a beautiful house in the beautiful countryside, and it's always sunny. And you know, you those are the kind of things I think you should read as a child because it makes you think that life is going to be beautiful. And I how I wish that it always were. Aww. I would love for them, love for children to, to believe that. And I think that innocence is so lovely. We um always made our own famous five adventures and my, my i remember my mom turned our house into like a sort of famous five cave at one point it was lovely um oddly my brother and i sorry carl for this used to sort of role play george and timmy but a, a version of it where they really hated each other <laughs> just <laughs> like trying to cause each other's destruction at all times i'm loving the idea of this role play simon it was great fun. i can't remember which of us was which but it lasted for years <laughs> um and oh, my favorite thing about Timmy is his sort of Lassie-esque comprehension of all of everything that's going on, and ability ability to communicate. You always get to be like "woof," said Timmy, as though to say that the smugglers are at the creek and we're coming up in five minutes' time. <laughs> it's like, well, thank goodness they've got this, you know, preternaturally perceptive and communicative dog. <laughs> Otherwise, where would we be? Exactly, they'd have been kidnapped even more times. <laughs> Uh, did you ever read any Unibrighton as a child that you didn't like? Um, I can't remember not liking anything that she wrote, actually. Um, I loved I, mean, I loved the Magic Faraway Tree books. Oh, yes. I used to read them endlessly. Um, again, again, again. Um, but no, I don't I mean I loved them all because I didn't really think about it. I just loved the adventure side of them all because I loved Swallows and Amazons and all those sorts of books. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in uh, South East London, you need these <laughs> escapist adventures to make you... Because I loved reading about the countryside and things like that because I was never in it. So it was fun. <laughs> Concrete and, jungle. And I was in the countryside when I was... Re- well, when I was first moving, I was not in the countryside, but I moved at seven to the uh, Worcestershire countryside and did not have any sorts of adventures like this i would sit inside and read about people having adventures you know in rivers whilst living about five minutes from a river <laughs> so, <laughs> um so yes i certainly didn't read it as uh, as a passageway to the countryside but maybe i should do that now that i no longer live in the countryside <laughs> you do live in the countryside so. oxford is not countryside <laughs> <laughs> i need fields i need no people there are too many people <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yes, and that reminds me, there were never any other children around, were there? Unless it was like an obnoxious visiting American. Yeah, I mean, no, they never really sort of move outside of their own little yeah. enclaves, do they? So, Everyone else was the enemy. She was, I mean, and it was often Americans. Was... Yes, obnoxious Americans and like questionable French people and things. I just love the stereotypes. So, talking of adventures, there's plenty of adventures in Inesbos in book as yeah. well. Books. Um, I really loved The Railway Children, obviously doesn't everyone um and i really liked the um five minute pleasure seekers samiad all those books um you know i read all of them i adored enis bit as a child still do and i think she is very different to enid blyton in that her books do stand the test of time mm. um 
I think my engagement with Ines was as a child was much more through adaptations, oh. um, because of my unstinting reading of Enid Blyton. It left so little time for anything else. <laughs> um, I certainly, and I've now read more, but I loved the Rowie Children film at the time and yeah. the um, Five Children TV series. But shamefully, I think I have only later come to read. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if I've even read. I think my mum led must have read Five Children at Two Us, but I don't think I read The Rowie Children until I was an adult. Um, that may or may not be true, but certainly I said that story is wonderful and has much more of an emotional impact than any of Enid Blyton's books. Yeah, did, I think because there was the stakes, whilst always sort of dramatically high in Enid Blyton, were always of the sort that you know are going to come good. Whereas Rory Children, you didn't know if her dad was coming back or not. <laughs> I know, sad. I think that the difference between them is that you know Enid's book was writing in the Edwardian period and. I think children's books then were a little bit darker. And even though, you know, if you think about people like Frances Hodgson Burnett, you know, death is so often a feature of those books. You know, it's not necessarily the, the driving force of the plot, but it's always hovering in the background somewhere. And whereas Enid Blyton is, is creating a world where nothing bad ever really happens, it is complete escapism. Um, Enid's book doesn't avoid the complications of life. That's true. So when I said that realism in children's books was a latter-day thing, I guess what I was wrong, and basically it skipped a generation, maybe. Yeah, um, I think nineteen fifties children's books, especially, are very sanitised. Perhaps because of post-war malaise and wanting to give children the peace and prosperity and vision of a lovely future that they would have lost during the war. Yeah, that I mean that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, I, oh yeah, I, I'm trying to think what else I've read. I read The Enchanted Castle not long ago. Have you read that one? I don't think I have, no. I'm trying to remember anything about it. So that was <laughs> 1907, according to Wikipedia, that I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> uh, um, and I remember it was a book that I picked up when I was about 10 or something, and I read almost none of it and put it on a shelf. And for years it was a book I felt guilty about not having read. <laughs> and so a couple of years ago and actually did read it. Um Oh, I'm just reading the Wikipedia plot summary. It's about a, a castle and a magic ring. I'd forgotten all about the magic ring. Oh, the ring is not magic. Oh, no, it is magic. Oh. It's, a, it's a roller coaster reading this Wikipedia article. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. Uh, what do you think the difference is like to, to pit them against each other? Because it makes sense. Um, five children in it, famous five. Well, that is a question. If I could remember much about five children, <laughs> it, this would be a good discussion. Um, I think <laughs> that the difference is, I think, um, I don't, well, I think this, I'll talk about similarities first. Do you, um, they're both sort of very domestic focused, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the five children and it books, I just, do you know what? I think the main difference is that, you know, it's just a better writer. She's more, um, She's more emotional, and I think she is a lot more three-dimensional in creating characters, whereas Enid Blyton's not necessarily interested in creating characters. It's all about the plot, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, exciting, lots of exciting things happening all at once. And it's not as if we ever really get an insight to what's really going on inside George's head. <laughs> um, it's like, why does she insist on being called George? And what's going on there? You know, there's, that's never explored. Um, and also, George seems to have a very weird relationship with her parents, which, again, is never delved into. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and why do Anne and Julian and Dick's parents send them off every summer? Why don't yes. they spend any time with them? Um, so, no, <laughs> they're obnoxious. Yeah, <laughs> they're really annoying. <laughs> um, 
and that dog especially. <laughs> They're desperate for them to be kidnapped by someone. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all those, you don't have any depth at all. Whereas Inez, but you have that emotional depth. And you could imagine the parents reading it to the children and they're picking up on the, on the parents' story and they're picking up on deeper things while the children are picking up on other things. It, that's She's very much a traditional children's writer in the sense that her books work for both adults and children. They're working for two audiences because there's the acknowledgement that the parents are going to be reading those books to the children. Whereas I think Enid Brighton books are more designed to be read independently by children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she like, knew what children liked and didn't yeah. seem to really care what adults wanted, exactly. which is fair enough. So they're more, she's more feeding into a child's simplified version of the world, whereas Ina's bit is much more Edwardian in the sense that she's writing something that can work for both. And she's also writing in a completely different style, really. Um, because completely, yeah, can't compare them at all. I don't know why we're doing. <laughs> yeah, well, in the sense that it's, no, no, different, no, gen- it's really. a different generation, isn't it? And I, what I do think is interesting is that my um, sort of uh, thoughts about that generation of writing, or maybe particularly a couple of decades before that, is that the books would be intensely moralistic and that they'd have, you know, like, if you behave like this, children, good things will happen. If you behave like this, bad things will happen. But hers don't do that, really, do they? I mean, they learn lessons right. along the way, but it's... I mean, to go back to the one that I know best, the children, um, there's nothing really there about this happened and that's why there was a happy ending. This is you, this was a happy ending because you behaved well. It wasn't anything like that. No. It was these are events happening to these children, these are natural ways to respond to things, the, the boy steals, but it's for good reason, The um, all those sorts of things. They ask for charity when they shouldn't, but again, for good reason. Um, none of it's like like sort of teaching children how to be, um, no. or, how, um, or at least not ostentatiously. I think there's a lot that you can learn about being a, it's being very a person in there. But Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, the bit always sticks with me in there is where um, the porter tries to return all the presents. Do you remember that bit? Um, I think so, yeah. So they go, I'm hoping this isn't the book rather than just a TV <laughs> thing, but I think it is, <laughs> that they um, they go round all the uh, local villages to collect birthday presents for him and he rejects them all. He says um, he doesn't want charity because he thinks they've all just come from the from the you know, the, the, the upper class family. Who, 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 and then they explain they're all from people who love him and they should keep them. And I always think of that when people get now say they don't want charity or something. I think read the railway children and see that you should accept things as they are meant and, and how they are intended. You shouldn't be too proud. Right, very true. Yes, we're taking a role reversal now. I'm doing the the motivational speaking <laughs> <laughs> and rousing speeches, and you're doing the non-committal <laughs> non-answers. <laughs> But I think that's what's very lovely about Eden Esbitt's books is that when you don't really read Enid Plighton and walk away thinking my soul has been enriched, <laughs> that's you fine. read an Eden Esbitt book and you think, yeah, you know what, these children have done something beautiful and they've been through this harrowing experience, but this family has stayed together and it's all about having faith and trust in one another and, and leaning on one another and looking out towards... And it's also about community, which is something that's increasingly eroding in our society today. Um, and I think that's something that's... I mean, I read a lot of young adult fiction these days because I have to for my job. And, um, you know, I find a lot of the young adult fiction incredibly depressing and um, kind of polarising in its in its depiction of the world about how lots, lots of people are alone and all these awful things happen and no one's very nice to each other. And I think, actually, I love books like um, Victorian and Edwardian children's books because they do talk about community and the importance of looking out for one another and loving each other and getting through mm-hmm. difficult times together. 
And rather than thinking, where is me, isn't my life awful? And it is about pulling together and making the best of what you've got. And I think that makes Inez bit so timeless, really, and also inspiring to read, which is why I get more out of reading those books than I do perhaps Enid Blyton. I get a lot of laughs out of reading Enid Blyton. <laughs> but not intentional um, ones. <laughs> but yeah, question of what most, mostly ones thinking, my goodness me, I cannot believe I read this and didn't turn out to be an utter racist bigot. And Enid's bit, in fact, deliberately funny often as well you know Brighton once you got beyond the age where you think that you know someone putting a chair out when someone sits down is amusing there's not a lot of you know yeah, um, sophisticated comedy in not very hilarious are they <laughs> and I love the existence also of, of joke shops that you can send off to did, did they ever exist <laughs> I guess they must have done <laughs> um, yeah I've met some, some wonderful characterizations in you know, so I was um Again, I hope this is in the book, not this film. But the the guy who just says "I dare say" um, while I was driving the family to their new building became a Thomas family catchphrase. I, I dare say, would um, <laughs> often be said. Um, but yes, it's sort of both the sort of humour of um, look uh, human foibles, I guess, and also just humour, <laughs> like the jokes and you know witty things happening in the narrative in Ines. But whereas, yeah, none of that in Ines Blackton. No. I mean, she wasn't exactly a um, stylist, was she? Less, she she didn't um, hone, you know, spend hours honing each paragraph. I feel. No. She used to <laughs> she... spend two weeks writing a book, I think. Yeah, at the very most. <laughs> Which is shocking, really. But there you are. And interestingly, um, speaking about the children versus adults thing, I do remember when I read Barbara Stoney's biography of Ian Blyton that she did write a book for adults that was rejected by her publisher, and she sort of quite dejected about that. Apparently, never tried again. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, can you imagine how terrible it would have been? Because <laughs> I, I, I just imagine her writing exactly the same book, <laughs> but with adults instead of children. I would like to read that manuscript. <laughs> yes. Uh, I assume it's been destroyed, otherwise it would definitely have been published by now, wouldn't it? Yeah. Go all harpily on us. Yes. <laughs> uh, did you know write anything for adults? Um... I want to say that she did, but I cannot give any specifics. Shall I go back to that um, go, Wikipedia page? I'll go to Wikipedia and see what it says. I feel like she did either try to or wanted to, I don't know. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find... Oh, she also wrote for adults, including 11, 11 novels, gracious, short stories and... Oh, wait, I've got one, haven't I? Yes, I've not read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Lark, I found in a charity shop. Um, Scott from Furrowed Middlebrow um, heartily recommended it. Do you know Scott's blog? Um, I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, it's, it's fab. He's the most thorough blogger out there ever. Um, and puts us all to shame. But, um, and also very enthusiastic. But this one, he talked about how wonderful it was and then and also how incredibly rare it, and, um, it and is to, to find. And of course, you managed but... to scoop it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet again, it's one that I scooped up and have not read. <laughs> so, uh, am I becoming a hate figure amongst bibliophiles? Yeah. It's what I've always wanted. You keep snapping up the bargains and then not reading them <laughs> so I'm looking um, it was her last novel for adults from 1922 um, oh she wrote as Fabian Bland wow. yes I, do you know what I knew that now you mentioned that good name I, oh gosh one, sorry I just noticed one called The Incomplete Amorist very nice <laughs> um, <laughs> now that that'll be my challenge I'll read it now because I feel guilty about owning it not reading it and I'll report back in a future podcast my, my findings on the lark Please do, because I would be very interested in hearing that, and perhaps also in borrowing it. 
Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. I should say that as long as I, as soon as I lend a book to someone, I immediately forget they've got it. So you're probably going to be able to keep it. <laughs> thing. Maybe I'll ask to borrow um, random jottings as well. <laughs> it's called random commentary. Otherwise, oh, I'll yeah, let you sorry. have it. <laughs> got the name wrong. You don't need it now. <laughs> <laughs> you're just quoting Elaine's blog title instead. I am just quoting Elaine's blog title. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean, so... Let's drag ourselves back to the task at hand. Yes. With the deci- and this is a tricky decision. I still haven't made up my mind. And um, I guess it's going to be two questions. Let's frame it as one. Like, Ina's okay. for, or Ina Blyton, if you could only read one from now on, right. which would you pick? Well, from now on, I would have to pick Edith Nesbitt because I can't go back to Ina Blyton now. It doesn't have the same magic for me. So that's it. And I would definitely say the same there. And this is the trickier one. If you could only have read one ever like past and future which would you pick oh simon <laughs> I, I make i try to make it as hard as possible <laughs> because the thing is i don't know what my life would be without taking the mickey out flashings of ginger beer and <laughs> um but then i don't also know what my life would be without the railway children but i could have just watched the film so <laughs> i'm going to say in Blyton. Um, and in a way that makes it not at all controversial or against each other, or <laughs> I'm going to agree <laughs> with you. I think so much of my love of reading was formed by reading the Famous Five, reading Ian Blyton in general, and making me the voracious reader I am today. That even though I accept that it's probably a <laughs> that that's the one I'll pick. That's <laughs> oh, uh, so, Yeah, yeah, all the way through yeah. this podcast. <laughs> Have to come up with something much um, more div- divisive yes, next time. Yes, something that we can actually say something about authoritatively. <laughs> yes, rather than just making a... At least we've read more than one yeah. book by these writers this time. I was taken to task for not having read enough <laughs> to you, Stevenson. Well, you know what, though? Do, did we need to, frankly? Well, no, true. Everyone was yeah. like, you've read the best ones. We are good on that. <laughs> so we need to think of something more specific for next time. But as, as always, we will... Do yes. that between that will take now us some and then. Yeah. <laughs> right, great. I think that's it, isn't it? Let's just go. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>